I'm Bobby Finger. And I'm Lindsay Weber. Do you ever see a new face or name on your news feeds and say, who the heck is that? Our podcast, Who Weekly, is everything you need to know about the celebrities you don't. Think of us as your cheat code to People Magazine, your glossary for Hollywood, a shortcut to understanding pop culture at large. For the past eight years, Who Weekly has been telling listeners everything they need to know about the celebrities they don't. The New Yorker says we spelunk deep into the demimonde with convivial delight. That's a direct quote. Mostly, we're going to explain to you Irish star Barry Keoghan's sudden rise to fame and relationship with a not-so-under-the-radar pop princess named Sabrina. The fake wedding Real Housewives star Cynthia Bailey had to promote a limo rental company. And why all the Gen Zers you know are talking about a guy named Benson Boone. Each episode goes deep into the biggest celebrity stories of the moment. And if you're still confused, we even have a weekly call-in episode where we answer the most burning celebrity queries. Who Weekly airs twice weekly with brand new episodes on Tuesdays and Fridays. Listen and follow Who Weekly, an Odyssey podcast, available now for free on the Odyssey app and wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. I wrote my mother a very long letter because I had never confronted her about the way she treated me or other people because I was terrified of her. But now that she was behind bars and she was going to be behind bars for the rest of her life, probably, I just let it all out in that letter. You know, I told her, I said, you know, why did you kill this attorney? Why did you kill this woman that was so valuable to the world? If my mother played a role in this, it needs to be brought to the light. I just don't think that they should let this case dry up. They should reopen it and reinvestigate it and look into it much more closely. She doesn't need to die thinking that she got away with it. I'm Jed Lipinski. This is Gone South, Season 1, Who Killed Margaret Kuhn? Episode 8, Waning Night. In the last episode, we noted that Patricia Curry denied knowing Margaret Kuhn beyond what she'd seen on TV or read in the newspaper after her death. But several people we spoke with suggested they did know one another. One of them was Retha Brannon. You may remember Retha from episode 5. She dated Margaret during Margaret's law school days in Baton Rouge and called her a living cancer in a poem she read to reporter James Hartman. Retha was interviewed by Detective Jay Daigle in January 1989. Daigle had shown her a photograph of Patricia, and Retha told him she looked familiar. She added that the name Patricia Curry, quote, has rung an absolute alarm bell. She told Daigle that at the time she was dating Margaret, a woman had accosted her in a bar and presented herself as Margaret's current girlfriend. Retha said it was obvious this woman had been dropped by Margaret. She wasn't certain, but she suspected it was Patricia Curry. 
Then there's Debbie S. Can. In episode six, we mentioned that Debbie had placed an anonymous phone call to Margaret's father, Webster, telling him to look at Patricia Curry as a suspect. Debbie told us she'd heard that Patricia walked Margaret's dog and had probably wanted to, quote, get in her pants. When she learned about the murder, she thought Margaret may have shunned Patricia, causing her to lash out. Still, Debbie said this was only a gut feeling. She had no evidence to back it up. But perhaps the best indication that Patricia and Margaret were acquainted came from Patricia's daughter, Janice Alexander. In December 2018, while former DEA agent Skip Sewell was investigating Patricia Curry, he asked the sheriff's office to send him any mail that Patricia was receiving in prison. One day, they sent him a letter written by Janice, who Skip had spoken to before. The letter was an eight-page diatribe full of accusations. Among many other things, Janice accused her mother of killing Margaret Kuhn. But why she thought that was unclear. So we decided to reach out. We spoke with Janice by phone this summer. She now lives in Los Angeles with her husband and two sons, but she was raised by Patricia in Baton Rouge. As she described it, she had a traumatic childhood. I would come in every day from school and go straight to the room because she would tell me to get out of her sight. I wasn't allowed to come out except to go to the bathroom and do chores and go back to school and to eat. She gave me one meal. It was the same thing every night. She would throw steaks on the grill, iceberg salad drowned in, in mayonnaise, and a glass of milk. But that's pretty much all I can remember ever having. I mean, I saw how evil and cold-hearted and ruthless she really was. You know, she didn't just lock me in the room. She used to beat me with a horse whip. She had a violent, violent temper. When she gets angry, she can just forget all logic, forget all reason, and just physically become very, very violent. You know, I had times where I would sit at the table where she would just take my hair and pull it out by the roots. It was extremely devastating to just live around somebody that you wanted so badly to love you, and they did just the opposite. Of all the horrible things Janice says she endured as a kid, one stands apart. She had asked me to come into the living room, and then she said, I want you to help me plan your death. That was my greatest memory of my childhood because it was so horrific. I just sat there and listened. I mean, I had absolutely zero self-esteem because of the way she had treated me all my life. I felt like, oh, well, you know, this is the end of me. And then I just prayed in my mind. I said, God, help me. Janice was 13 at the time, and she managed to talk her mother out of it. Instead, she says, her mother came up with a different plan. She winded up packing a suitcase of mine and putting me out on the highway and going to Germany for the next seven years. When Patricia returned from Germany, Janice was an adult. And despite the abusive treatment, Janice kept in touch with her mother and occasionally visited her in Boshen. 
One of those visits occurred around 1990 or 91, she says, shortly after Patricia's girlfriend, Kim Mervich, had moved out. I think I was at my mother's condominium. I may have asked her where Kim was or she she mentioned Kim or something. And, and then my mother said, she's saying that I killed Margaret Kuhn across the street. Mama never said, well, I didn't do it, you know, after she told me that Kim had said she did it. She never looked at me and said, but I didn't. She never said that. So, uh, you know, that was my first moment of, of believing that she had something to do with it. At that point, Janice didn't know who Margaret Kuhn was. But when she learned more details about the murder, something clicked. So when mom told me that Kim said she killed Margaret Kuhn and I found out which condominium that Margaret lived in and recognized that it was the condominium and the lady who had the dog that she let run wild, I remembered that mom couldn't couldn't stand her. My mother used to get furious because Margaret would let the dog out the back door and let the dog run wild. And the dog had no knowledge of staying out of the road and staying away from from traffic. It would just dart across the road and dart around the tennis courts. And when I was there one time, Margaret let the dog out and mom was Mom was yelling about it in front of me. So I think she had already had words with Margaret about that and arguments with Margaret about that. But I knew that she didn't like Margaret Kuhn. That's when I said to myself, boy, she probably did kill her. I was shocked by Janice's story, but it also made sense. We knew that Margaret's dog, Charlene, had gotten loose in Beauchene before. In fact, it was loose the night she was killed. As we mentioned in episode one, half a dozen people claimed to have seen Charlene by the tennis courts in the early evening, an hour or so before Margaret's official time of death. And that wasn't the first time it happened. After Margaret's death, Carolyn Ashbow, one of Margaret's neighbors, told detectives that Charlene often got loose. One time, she said Charlene darted out the front door while Margaret's father, Webster, was visiting. It took Margaret 45 minutes to find her and bring her back. I asked Janice how she reacted when she learned that Kim thought Patricia had killed Margaret Kuhn. I didn't ask any more questions because, you know, it put sort of a shock in a fright in me to get away from my mom. Janice left her mother's condominium soon after, and she says she stayed away for close to 20 years. During that time, Janice created a new life. She moved to Los Angeles with her family, entered counseling, and became a born-again Christian. The next time she visited Patricia was in 2009. Within days of her arrival, her mother made a shocking confession to Janice who Patricia still addressed by her childhood nickname, Panny. She had drove me to the library and 
she pulled the car over in the side of the road before we got to the library and she she looked at me and she said, Panny, I've killed three people and I'm about to kill two more. Janice froze. She stared at her mother. I said, Mom, I don't want to hear anything more about this. I locked myself in my room with my oldest son and I whispered in his ear because I knew she might be on the other side of the door listening. And I said, we have to get out of here as as soon as opportunity. We have to get out of here. My mom's killed three people. We have to get out of here. And um, the next day when she went to the grocery store, we left. So you believed your mom when she said that? Most definitely. I had no doubt in my mind that she had killed three people. Wow. Never had a doubt in my mind. Janice says she asked who the two people were that she planned to kill. According to Janice, her mother named two attorneys, one who was currently representing her and another who'd opposed her in a long-running lawsuit. I think that she wanted to confess to me because she never believed that I would betray her and go to the police. She looked at me as poor, pathetic, worthless panty that she could do anything to and I wouldn't cross her. Like in my childhood, she could do anything to me and I would just take it. But she didn't know me. She hadn't seen me for decades. I had become much stronger and had a lot of self-worth. Janice says she called the attorneys as soon as she landed in L.A. I warned both of them to be very, very careful and to watch out because my mother wanted them dead. Not only that, I called the police and the sheriff and let them know. According to Janice, the police didn't seem to take her seriously. One of the attorneys she warned was in disbelief. The other didn't pick up the phone, so Janice wrote him a long letter. As for the three people her mother said she'd already killed, Janice thought one of them was Margaret Kuhn. She had theories about the other two, but she didn't know for sure. A few years ago, Janice earned a master's degree in criminal justice from Liberty University in Virginia. She did it, she says, because she wanted to understand how the mind of a serial killer works. I just wanted to understand if there were any feelings in a serial killer. And what I've discovered over the years is that there are some people on the face of this earth that could care less how innocent you are or the fact that you never did anything to them. And they will do the worst things to you, the most horrific things to you, even though you're just an innocent lamb. I just knew that I had a mother who was a serial killer. And it was it was just devastating. You know, it was it's it was horrific. I still can't wrap my brain around it completely. Obviously, these are serious allegations. As far as we know, there is no hard evidence that Patricia Curry killed three people or planned her own daughter's death or intended to kill the two attorneys she mentioned neither of whom were Keith Couture, the lawyer she ultimately did try to kill. Janice struck me as a traumatized but resilient individual. She sounded genuine, but all I had to corroborate her story was a single letter. So I called Blair Alford, 
the assistant DA who prosecuted Patricia Curry. She had spoken with Janice numerous times, and she found her to be credible. What I can say is that when she provided certain information, uh, Skip or myself did follow up on that, and in many instances, as was revealed throughout the court record and, and testimony, did lead to relevant information that, that turned out to, in fact, be truthful. In addition to emails, Janice provided Blair Alford with more than a dozen handwritten letters she had received from her mother over the years. A week before the release of this episode, Blair sent them to us. One of those letters, dated February 20th, 2019, appears to respond to the accusatory letter Janice sent to her in prison two months earlier. In one passage, Patricia quotes Shakespeare's famous line from Henry IV, the first thing we do, let's kill all the lawyers. In the very next paragraph, she addresses the murder of Margaret Kuhn. Patricia starts her letter by writing, quote, a woman assistant DA, Margaret Kuhn, was murdered just across the street from my condominium. It happened years ago, 1987, I believe. I did not know her nor know of her until I read it in the papers. Let's pause here. Based on what we heard earlier from Retha, Debbie, and especially Janice, the idea that Patricia did not even know of Margaret seems hard to imagine. Patricia goes on to write, Working away from home, my landlady and I were eating supper at a restaurant when it occurred. This also strikes me as odd. As her letters demonstrate, Patricia has a phenomenal memory for details, stemming back to her childhood in Bruley, Louisiana. In January 1989, Patricia evidently told detectives that she was eating supper with her girlfriend, Kim Mervich, when the murder occurred. Kim later confirmed this to her mother and Skip Sewell. So why, in 2019, is Patricia saying she was with her landlady that night? She also writes this, Every so often, some jerk detective from the sheriff's office comes to question me. Boy, I bet their antennae are spinning around right now, trying harder than ever to link me to it. Really? She was stabbed in the back while jogging. Can't you just see me running up behind her and knowing just how to do that? This line brings up an important point. But before we get into that, it's worth noting the overall tone of this denial. There's an audacious gaslighting quality to it. As if, despite the fact that she's sitting in prison for having attempted to kill her lawyer, one would be crazy to think she might have been involved in the murder of another lawyer who was stabbed across the street from her home. She used the same tactic in her defense at trial, despite damning evidence that she'd tried to kill Keith Couture. With that being said, no, I cannot see Patricia stabbing Margaret in the back. That's because she presented evidence to authorities that she was in Baton Rouge that night. What I can see her doing is getting someone else to do it and making sure she had an alibi. As it happens, other people can see her doing that too. For example, in Janice's letter to Patricia in prison, she accuses her mother of hiring a hitman to try and track her down and kill her in Los Angeles. And one of Patricia's ex-girlfriends, who asked us not to use her name, 
told us this. Yeah, Patricia and I were with each other at least a year and a half. And she did not want to let me go. She hunted me. She would directly tell me, you know, if, you know, I can, I can eliminate you in a second. And nobody will ever know where you are. Nobody will ever know anything. She said that she knew people in New Orleans that would do it for her. I don't know if she meant gang members or mafia. She told you that? Yes, many times. She also told us something else. She would always bring this, this person up. She would, get, she would work herself into a rage about it. The most that I can remember about it, it was somebody of prominence. And it, it was something to do that they had a problem between the two of them. It, it was almost like she did know who she was and the woman knew who she was. And they had some kind of dispute and that Patricia was going to get her sooner or later. And saying that that bitch would jog through the neighborhood and I could just kill her. I'm the type of person that if it walks like a duck and quacks like a duck and looks like a duck, it's got to be a duck. You know, you look at the history and the personality of her and the things that she has done over the years, it looks like a duck. You Hey, let me tell you something. Mm. You be very, very careful. She is a serial killer, I believe. And I think she's killed many times. And I don't think she gives up. Calling all pop culture enthusiasts. Are you obsessed with all things celebrity? Do you live for the drama, the laughs, and the unexpected moments that unfold on social media? Then you're going to want to tune in to the Comments by Celebs podcast. Join us three times a week as we deep dive into every aspect of pop culture. Whether it's dissecting the latest trends or just chatting about your favorite celebs, Comments by Celebs has you covered. We have new episodes out every week. Follow and listen to Comments by Celebs on the free Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. They said it couldn't be done. They say it bordered on impossible. When someone says I can't do something, I usually agree with them. <laughs> and now, against all odds, this completely mediocre comedy podcast has done the unthinkable. They got listeners. We got listeners. No way. Amazing. Now available on the Odyssey app or wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm so happy we're at Odyssey now. Oh my God, they're amazing. The Commercial Break Podcast. You heard it here last. Over the course of this podcast, we've explored a lot of different theories in an effort to answer the question, who killed Margaret Kuhn? There was the bizarre golf ball attack and the Beauchene employee who claims he saw a man with a knife hours before Margaret was killed. There was the ex-husband, Bernard Smith, the new boyfriend, Jay Fagan, Jay's estranged wife, Brenda, Charles Muley, the Slidell cop who was caught raping and molesting girls and was a fugitive when Margaret was killed. There was Craig Rodriguez, the drifter whose confession was deemed a bizarre delusion. There was Rose Gleason, 
Patricia Curry's ex-girlfriend, and the case of mistaken identity. All of this has led to what will be our final theory, the Patricia Curry theory, the one which I believe to be true. I think Patricia Curry is lying when she says she didn't know Margaret Kuhn. I'm not saying they dated or slept together, though that's possible. But consider this. They had both lived in Baton Rouge in the mid-1970s, when Margaret was single and exploring her sexual identity. They both hung out at Charlene's Bar in New Orleans. They both dated women. They were both dog lovers. They were both accomplished professional women. And for a period of about five months, they lived 300 yards from one another in Beauchene. I think Patricia was mad at Margaret for some reason. It's possible, as some suggested, that Margaret had spurned Patricia in the past. As we know, Margaret was known to do this. You're dead to me, I'm dead to you. Don't ever contact me. Margaret would start relationships and become very emotionally involved with them and then simply cut them off, simply drop them like a hot rock and break their hearts. Knowing Patricia's temper, this would have infuriated her. She may have stewed over it for years. And then, in the fall of 1986, Margaret moved into Patricia's gated subdivision. She started jogging past her condo every day, and her dog, Charlene, occasionally got loose, wandering into the road across from Patricia's home. In one of Patricia's letters to Janice from prison, she wrote that she'd never once allowed any of her dogs to be left alone outside that Margaret allowed her gorgeous Afghan hound to repeatedly risk getting hit by a car would have driven Patricia crazy. My mother cares more about animals than people. I think Patricia knew Margaret was going to be stabbed that night, and I think she hired someone to do it. Her ex-girlfriend said she talked about hiring hitmen, quote, all the time, and her daughter suspected she'd once hired someone to kill her. And Faye St. Germain, Kim Mervich's mother, documented several incidents in which she believes Patricia hired men to threaten her family. She keeps her hands clean, and she gets other people to do her dirty work. But if Patricia really did hire someone to kill Margaret Kuhn that night, who did she hire? Weeks after episode one aired, in response to a public records request, we received more than two dozen redacted sheriff's interviews and reports related to the Margaret Kuhn homicide. Taken together, they helped us paint a clearer picture of what happened on the night of February 19, 1987. At 5.45 p.m., an unnamed Boshen resident claimed that they were cutting through the golf course en route to the tennis club when they spotted a white male who, quote, didn't look like he was from Boshen. An hour later, Judy Edwards, the judge's wife who was once considered a suspect, was on the Boshen putting green. She heard some commotion by the golf cart barn and someone shouting, no, he's over here. Moments later, a Boshen security guard named Earl Charbonnet got a call from the assistant manager of the country club. The manager reported that someone was throwing golf balls into the golf cart barn. The golf balls started coming from nowhere. When Earl arrived, the valet, David Talley, 
pointed to a small blue pickup truck parked on the shoulder of Boshen Drive, about 100 feet away. The manager had told us, David has taken off chasing somebody. Tally explained that the driver had just confronted him with a knife. He said the man was white, approximately 5'10 and 160 pounds, with brown or black hair and a full beard. He was wearing a short sleeve shirt and dark colored pants. Earl pursued the truck in an effort to get its license plate number, but the truck sped away with its lights off and disappeared inside Boshin. So Earl called the sheriff's office. At 7.22 p.m., patrol deputy Joe Freeman arrived. We mentioned Joe in episode one. As he was questioning members of the security team, Joe spotted some kids running across the roof of the golf cart barn and chased them into the woods. Joe patrolled the area for the next 30 to 40 minutes and didn't see anything suspicious. I didn't see anything, so I left and went on about my normal duties. He left Boshen a little after 8 p.m. Half an hour later, at around 8.30, Margaret's neighbors, Lawrence and Joanne Faybacher, told detectives they saw Margaret leaving her condominium with Charlene to go jogging. As we mentioned before, the coroner's report listed Margaret's official time of death as 8.30 p.m. That's because detectives were able to confirm through a receipt that the Faybachers had left dinner at the Boshen Country Club shortly before then. But they were not the last people who claimed to have seen Margaret that night. Almost an hour later, at 9.25, another unnamed resident was driving their two kids home when they saw a woman jogging toward the tennis courts on North Boshen Drive with a large white dog. When detectives later showed the resident a picture of Margaret and her dog, they said they were positive that that was who they'd seen. Five minutes later, another couple approached the tennis courts along North Boshen Drive. Suddenly, they both caught a glimpse of a man who ducked behind some trees off the side of the road. They were just feet from where Margaret's body was found the next morning. And while they didn't see Margaret, they did see Margaret's dog, Charlene. She seemed to be pursuing the man hiding in the trees, and the man was trying to get her to go away. There were no streetlights, so the couple did not get a good look at the man. But he appeared to be about 5'10 and of medium build. He was wearing a short sleeve shirt and long pants. The most distinctive thing about him, the couple said, was his voice. They could hear him talking to the dog in the woods. It was a very unusual voice, they said. According to the interview transcript, it came from, quote, deep down in his chest, a metallic, horror-sounding voice. I think that this man, who was never identified, killed Margaret Kuhn. And I suspect he was hired by Patricia Curry. The many people we've heard from over the last few episodes, people who knew Patricia, who dated her, who are related to her, have no hard evidence to support this accusation. 
This is speculation based on their memory and perception of Patricia's actions and words. As I mentioned in episode seven, Patricia stopped responding to my letters when I brought up Margaret's murder. Apart from the short letter excerpt we discussed in this episode, we have not heard her side of the story. She has not explained why she insisted that Kim Mervich leave her apartment hours before Margaret was killed. She has not explained why she sent Kim Mervich back to Boshan the following morning and ordered her to call as soon as she entered the condominium. She has not explained why she kept a restaurant receipt for two years, which placed her in Baton Rouge around the time of Margaret's murder. The list of questions is long, and as of December 15th, 2021, Patricia Curry has not provided any answers. We encourage her to respond to us, and we encourage law enforcement to ask her the same questions. Before we bring this podcast to a close, I want to share some final thoughts with you. When Skip Sewell first told me about the story of Margaret Kuhn, it sounded pretty simple. A wealthy and beautiful attorney was murdered inside an exclusive subdivision in a leafy suburb of New Orleans, a place where people weren't supposed to be murdered. Not long after, I read a book called Fortress America by an academic named Elaine Tyler May. One of the book's counterintuitive ideas is that gated communities like Boshen are no safer than non-gated communities. By erecting barriers around ourselves, May argues, we often adopt a false sense of security, making ourselves more vulnerable to danger. Against my better judgment, I tried to apply this idea to Margaret's decision to move to Boshen in the fall of 1986. I thought her story could serve as a timely morality tale about the mistaken belief that walling ourselves off from others makes us more safe. As I reported the story, however, the details stubbornly refused to fit that framework. Margaret was not what I expected. She was actually kind of a badass. As her law school professor said, she could have gone to Hollywood and been a movie star. She could have been a socialite. Instead, she chose to be a lawyer and became St. Tammany's only female prosecutor at the time. As an assistant DA, she went after violent criminals and people who abused women and children. Her courage and desire to do good in the world put her at risk. And when you consider that she was newly divorced and living alone for the first time in years, her decision to move to Boshen made sense. I might have done the same thing if I were her. People I spoke with tended to focus on Margaret's appearance, but in many ways, it was the least interesting thing about her. She was funny, curious, intelligent, and tough. She was ahead of her time. And when she died, she was on the verge of rebirth. She had started therapy and she was benefiting from it. She joined a new law firm in New Orleans. She was falling in love with a guy who respected her. And according to Brenda, her father's caretaker, she was planning to adopt a child with special needs. Margaret captured this idea of renewal in a poem she wrote in high school titled Dawn. Her father held on to it after her death. It begins with these lines. The world lies in its blue-black haze, the stars above in jumbled maze. 
When still pale radiance creeps on, waning night gives way to dawn. The final stanza reads, but pause a moment while day is new. Think of what it brings to you, a wealth the same to everyone in minutes and seconds and hours. I thought that trying to solve Margaret's murder might help me and others find meaning in her death in some form of resolution. In the process, I revealed a lot of details about her personal life that probably would have appalled her. I felt guilty about that. When I spoke with reporter James Hartman, he said he felt the same way when he published his story about Margaret's relationship with Retha years ago. I asked him how he dealt with it. And he told me, I would like to think that from whatever life she's in now, Margaret would want all stones turned over to try to figure out who killed her. I would like to think that too. And that's what I tried to do. Thanks for listening. If you have tips or information that you'd like to share related to the unsolved murder of Margaret Kuhn or other relevant topics, you can call us at 650-746-GONE or email us at gonesouthpodcast at gmail.com. Thank you for listening to Gone South, a direction and production of C13 Originals, a Cadence 13 company. Executive produced by Chris Corcoran of Cadence 13, along with John Liebman, Ken Lee, and Jared Shear. Written and narrated by me, Jed Lipinski. Directed by Lloyd Lockridge. Produced by Tom Lipinski. Edited by Alistair Sherman, with assistant editing by Molly Nugent. Research and production support by Ian Mont and Paige Heimson. Recording and engineering by Bob Tabador, Bill Schultz, and Sean Cherry and mixed and mastered by Chris Basil. Original music written and performed by Casey Wayne McAllister. Production consulting by Skip Sewell. Marketing and publicity by Brian Swarth, Moira Curran, Hilary Schuff, and Josephina Francis. Cadence 13 is an Odyssey company. a new true crime podcast from the team behind Up and Vanished. In 2016, Justin Alexander, an adventurer, was invited on a trek by an Indian holy man. They headed to a spiritual ground in the Himalayan mountains, a place beyond civilization. The holy man returned and said nothing, but Justin was never seen again. What happened to him? Dive deep into our investigation and uncover the strange events surrounding Justin's disappearance in status untraced. Check out this sneak preview. And this last experience he had with Rawat, I didn't feel good about it. In fact, I felt it was dangerous. It sounds strange, but I just, in my mother's heart, something was not okay. I felt that he was a nefarious character. Status Untraced is available now. Listen for free on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts.